Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So for the first episode of the second year of this podcast, I wanted to try something new, and that is to read sort of a hybrid of things and just see what happens. The one thing that surprised me and struck me and sort of hijacked my mind this year um, and my poetry is that Shakespeare is probably the... English epic or narrative poet that I've been looking for for so long. I just wrote to someone yesterday saying that uh, for a while I was upset because Milton certainly isn't that, and uh, even Wordsworth isn't that. Uh, Both of them have their strengths, but they're basically the only characters either of them have are themselves. Wordsworth is writing about himself, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Paradise Lost are, is just filled with sort of reflections of Milton. Um, only in Shakespeare do we get all of these characters and all of these actual narratives and stories. And it strikes me that the vehicle for those stories, for those narratives, and the reason that they have stayed with us for so long uh, is the iambic pentameter line, the ten-syllable da-dum-da-dum-da-dum-da-dum line that we have. And of course, that's the one that uh, John Milton took up for Paradise Lost, and that's the one that Wordsworth took up for his prelude and a lot of his other poetry. And it's the one, generally, that, that I've tried to take up since 2013 or so. Uh, the only reason that I decided to take it up was because I saw from people who know these things much better than I do that whether you're talking about Shakespeare or Milton or Wordsworth or even up to Wallace Stevens in the last century, what poets do with the iambic pentameter line is uh, make it variable. Uh, It's not always da dum da dum da dum. Um, You do things with it so that it doesn't become boring and if the iambic pentameter line is meant to, the blank verse line, the unrhymed blank verse line, is really supposed to be the best vehicle we have for conveying speech or thought or narrative. It has to vary in some, in some sense, uh, because life varies and speech varies, as we know. So that what I wanted to do today is read something from Shakespeare, and then something from Wordsworth 200 years later, and then something from me 200 years after Wordsworth, just to show how this uh, ten-syllable blank verse line 
uh, can survive, really, and can hold so much and contain so much and continue to convey meaning over the centuries. I say this even as I have become, over the last 10 years or so, uh, to have an immense respect for the, the alliterative line of the Anglo-Saxons and what became of it in something like Piers Plowman. And because for the first time in my life, I began to have a, a great respect for rhyming poetry, which I ne could never really do before uh, the past 10 years or so. But it strikes me, obviously, the, the alliterative line uh, died out uh, a long time ago, centuries ago. Uh, rhyming has kept up, obviously. People still do that. But I don't think if we're talking about conveying a narrative, telling a story, and also trying to convey character alongside that and their interiority and their, their public face and all of that, I don't think that rhyme can do it either. Rhyme is good for the short lyric or the song. It's meant to be that. And it's worth remembering that when Homer uh, sang his Iliad and his Odyssey, of course, it was not rhymed, um, although it had a, a meter of its own. But in any case, two uh, speeches from Hamlet. And this is from early on. This first one is from early on, where all Hamlet wants to do is act. He wants to find something to do, but of course he cannot. He says, Oh, that this too, too sullied flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew, or that the everlasting had not fixed his cannon against self-slaughter, that is suicide. Oh, God, God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Fie on it, O oh, fie! Tis an unweeded garden that grows to seed. Things rank and gross in nature possess it merely. That it should come to this, but two months dead, nay, not so much, not two, since his father's death. So excellent a king that was to this Hyperion to a satyr, so loving to my mother that he might not beteem the winds of heaven visit her face too roughly. Heaven and earth must I remember why she would hang on him as if increase of appetite had grown by what it fed on. And yet, within a month, of course, his mother marries Hamlet's father's brother, his uncle. And yet, within a month, let me not think on it. Frailty, thy name is woman. A little month, or ere these shoes were old, with which she followed my poor father's body, like Niob, all tears, why she, even she, O oh God, a beast that wants discourse of reason, would have mourned longer. She married with my uncle, my father's brother, but no more like my father than I to Hercules. Within the month, ere yet the salt of the most unrighteous tears had left the flushing in her galled eyes, she married. O oh, most wicked speed, to post with such dexterity, to incestuous sheets. It is not, nor it cannot come to good, but break my heart, for I must hold my tongue. Now maybe I've just read this too many times, and I know what they're talking about, but that seems, uh, aside from some of the mythological stuff, that seems immensely clear and powerful to me. I should also say that I don't read Shakespeare out loud. 
uh, without some reservations. Um, but, uh, and I should say too that the very last thing I posted here, the interview with the waitress, I didn't read that without some self-awareness either. Um, I, I'm not an actor, but uh, I think it is worth at least putting the sound of one's voice on record reading these things, if we can. Um, let's see. And here is the, the famous speech, To Be or Not To Be. Just listen to this. This is incredible that uh, Hamlet wrote, uh, Shakespeare wrote this around 1600 or so. And this is Hamlet wondering whether he should get his revenge or would it be better to just kill himself, even though we have no idea what comes after death. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and, by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give me pause. There is the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietest make with a bare botkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose bourne no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied over with the pale cast of thought, and enterprises of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. And again, aside from some of the vocabulary there, I think the gist of that is fairly clear, and both of these speeches end with him saying, but break my heart, I must hold my tongue, and this one lose the name of action. That is what Hamlet does. He cannot act. Um, now, 200 years later, about 1805 or so, this is the beginning of William Wordsworth's prelude. His, uh, and this is from the first book where he is talking about his uh, childhood in the Lake District. And this is also uh, iambic pentameter. I spare to speak, my friend, of what ensued. The admiration and the love, the life and common things, the endless store of things rare, or at least so seeming, every day found all about me in one neighborhood, the self-congratulation, the complete composure, and the happiness entire. But speedily a longing in me rose to brace myself to some determined aim, reading or thinking, 
either to lay up new stores or rescue from decay the old by timely interference. I had hopes still higher, that with a frame of outward life I might endue, might fix in a visible home, some portion of those phantoms of conceit that had been floating loose about so long, and to such beings temperately deal forth the many feelings that oppressed my heart. And a few lines later, Time, place, and manners, these I seek, and these I find in plenteous store, but nowhere such as may be singled out with steady choice. No little band of yet-remembered names, whom I, in perfect confidence, might hope to summon back from lonesome banishment, and make them inmates in the heart of men, now living, or to live in times to come. And a few lines later, this is a, a longer section. Then, last wish, my last and favorite aspiration. Then I yearn towards some philosophic song of truth that cherishes our daily life with meditations passionate from deep recesses in man's heart, a mortal verse thoughtfully fitted to the Orphean lyre. But from this awful burthen I full soon take refuge and beguile myself with trust that mellower years will bring a riper mind and clearer insight. Thus from day to day I live a mockery of the brotherhood of vice and virtue, with no skill to part vague longing that is bred by want of power, from paramount impulse not to be withstood, a timorous capacity from prudence, from circumspection, infinite delay, humility and modest awe themselves betray me, serving often for a cloak to a more subtle selfishness, that now doth lock my functions up in blank reserve, now dupes me by an over-anxious eye that with a false activity beats off simplicity and self-presented truth. Ah, better far than this to stray about voluptuously through fields and rural walks, and ask no record of the hours given up to vacant musing, unreproved neglect of all things, and deliberate holiday. Far better never to have heard the name of zeal and just ambition than to live thus baffled by a mind that every hour turns recreant to a task, takes heart again, then feels immediately some hollow thought hang like an interdict upon her hopes. This is my lot, for either still I find some imperfection in the chosen theme, or see of absolute accomplishment much wanting, so much wanting, in myself that I recoil and droop, and seek repose and indolence from vain perplexity, unprofitably traveling towards the grave, like a false steward who hath much received and renders nothing back. Was it for all this that one, the fairest of all rivers, loved to blend his murmurs with my nurse's song, and from his alder shades and rocky falls, and from his fords and shallows, sent a voice that flowed along my dreams. For this didst thou, O Derwent, traveling over the green plains near my sweet birthplace, didst thou, beauteous stream, make ceaseless music through the night and day, which with its steady cadence tempering our human waywardness, composed my thoughts to more than infant softness, giving me among the fretful dwellings of mankind a knowledge 
a dim earnest of the calm which nature breathes among the hills and groves. When, having left his mountains to the towers of Cockermouth, that beauteous river came, behind my father's house he passed close by, along the margin of our terrace walk. He was a playmate whom we dearly loved. Oh, many a time have I a five-year's child, a naked boy, in one delightful rill, a little mill race severed from the stream, made one long bathing of a summer's day, basked in the sun and plunged and basked again, alternate, all a summer's day, or coursed over the sandy fields, leaping through groves of yellow grunsel, or when crag and hill, the woods and distant Skiddaw's lofty height were bronzed with a deep radiance, stood alone beneath the sky, as if I had been born on Indian plains, and from my mother's hut had run abroad in wantonness to sport, a naked savage in the thunder shower. Now, it's true that Hamlet was written to be performed and Wordsworth's prelude was not, so it's, it's almost as if the newer story is harder to comprehend or read than the older one, simply by that fact. Uh, although the, when he finally gets to the description of the Derwent River, um, it all becomes quite clear and radiant, at least to me. And it's nice knowing that um, my wife and I went to the Lake District 2014 or so, I believe, so that when he says dis distant Skiddaw's lofty height, um, that is a mountain we climbed. So that is nice that uh, Wordsworth was looking at Skiddaw's lofty height just as we were. Although it is one of the great regrets, not regrets, uh, regret is too strong a word, but still one of the strange things of my life that I tried and tried and tried before our trip in 2014 to get into Wordsworth, and I couldn't do it because I knew his grave was there. Uh, his grave was uh, outside the church in uh, Grasmere, and I knew we, we would be visiting it, and I wanted to see if I could catch some affection for him before we left, and I just couldn't. Um, it was only after that that suddenly Wordsworth uh, blew my head open in the way that he does with this prelude. Um, but again, I think this is 200 years ago. Is there anything you might say faddish right now in style or content or whatever it is that will still be read in 200 years? I'm not sure that there is. Um, I'm not sure what people will make of our poetry right now in 200 years that doesn't seem to have uh, much form or discipline behind it and just seems to be either uh, motivated by theory or politics. Uh, either of those things uh, are pretty dead and dry a few years after you've written them. But in any case, um, to me anyhow, uh, it's incredible that you can read this 200 years later and still, basically, you get the idea and you can use this way of writing today as well. This comes from... Find it. So listeners here will know that I've spent the year writing poems about Shakespeare. It started with the episode about Whitman and his love life, Whitman and sex. 
And instead of writing about Whitman directly, I thought to transfer some of that to Shakespeare, learn a bit more about Shakespeare's life, and write the poems about Shakespeare instead. So these are, these are just two small poems um, about Shakespeare. And uh, again, when I share my own stuff, the, the question is, how do you write this kind of poetry? Again, as I said with the Holocaust, uh, if the question is, how do you write poems uh, from the point of view of Shakespeare, the usual answer would be, you don't. But of course, uh, I wanted to try, and this is what I came up with. This is just a small one about Shakespeare in London, remembering his life there and his childhood in Stratford. It says, My life in London began in the mind, and it remains an imagined city. No matter how long I linger, London will only live as my own creation, more a memory out of my own head, a stage that had been waiting since before the Romans for me to step upon it. This is the curse of my trade, that the world passes into poetry while I watch, and with such constant, untiring force. Only Stratford is less unreal to me, the place of my first original forms, and London is merely that village lifted to a deeper, more populous music, a speech that shook my spirit and still does, drumming me bodiless into the night, longing for touch, but long since satisfied to be smoke in the air, caught in the rafters. And later on there's this, again, talking about him being an anonymous presence in a room and the vitality he gets from writing. Where is the error of living in the mind or the mistake in living through others? A child learns to live by imitation. The pious are refined by the divine model. Lovers become one another and our kings disappear behind titles and the generations that bend their backs. We are images more than anything, and we imagine nearly everything more than we ever experience them. Yet somehow I'm the one eluding life, as if everyone isn't equally elusive and comparatively fugitive. I've no more absconded from the terror of life than anyone who wears their clothes just to hide their body and heart or who locates in old words or the newest thoughts the only way they can attempt to speak. But where you despise the crowd you're trapped with, I've never allowed myself that sour snare. You argue in the street while I write a play, and this flood from my fingers, stories pouring out, and those shadows in me finding form, this love of movement and vitality terrifies me, astounds me, it won't stop. Like a baited bear, my mind lashes out, and nothing it confers is ever, ever finished. I will continue as I always have, willing myself forward regardless, a thousand bodies playing in my bones, the will of millions within my veins, the beauty of men and women, all bodies, and the glory of ambiguity, and the only God I know, the only God I've learned from, willingly brimming with every form, 
To will is what I am. To watch these things appear from my pencil and shake the spirit of my silent room. What is lust and bawdry compared to this? A rut with our clothes on or a bad joke? What are titles, names, and categories? But the scared comforts of singular lives that have never known a quadrillion. My body barely some smoke that they shake their experience into. Pure rhetoric, pure joy, the sound of overflowing life. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.